Hi and welcome to another episode of Magical Match, a place to hear about real people with real stories around the important topic of stem cell donation and transplants. In each episode, I'll be chatting with donors, recipients, those in supportive roles and people who have been affected by either a personal experience or through another's inspirational story. It is my hope that by opening the conversation around stem cell donation, we can inspire more people to sign up to the stem cell register, offering more hope to those in need. In this episode, I spoke with Louise Stevens about her son Jack, who died at the tender age of four years old following JMML, a form of blood cancer. Louise spoke so eloquently and honestly about the impact that it's had on her family life. She also spoke very passionately about the campaign she has going in Australia to make access for swabs for donors much easier and to increase the numbers of people on the stem cell register. She also spoke fondly of her charity, Forever Four, who helps bereaved families after they have lost somebody to cancer. I first asked her to introduce her son, Jack. I hope you enjoy the listen. I love talking about Jack. Obviously, we we love talking about Jack, you know, because people, as you know, uh, start to mention his name less and ask about him less and it's just that kind of awkwardness from people to talk about him mm. um, and we've just had his little birthday where he would have turned six so it's lovely to talk about him in his birthday month um, he was a gorgeous little boy absolutely fit and healthy you know just the light of this family he was he held us all together he was just simply a magical little person um and went in to have his tonsils out and couldn't quite recover from that um and i was just really worried about him in that week and we must have seen about six doctors um and none of them really picked up on what was going on and now eventually walked him into the emergency department. Well, actually he ran in skipping and singing and <laughs> I said, As they said, oh, why, you know, why are you here? And I said, well, there's something terribly wrong with my son and I'm not leaving until I've got some answers. And I'm quite sure she rolled her eyes at us, but um, that was the night we were diagnosed with leukemia. That night? Night. Yeah, mm. yeah, okay. But because he had... Uh, a very, very rare one, JMML. It took almost two weeks to diagnose that because it's um, because of the diagnostic process for that particular leukemia. So we, we went into hospital and that's where we kind of almost stayed for almost sort of seven months. We had three weeks at home in seven and a half months, I think, in total. But okay. some of those days were spent in clinic, still going up to clinic for chemo and that sort of thing. So, Can you mm. explain to everybody listening? So I've gone in with a, with a straight question to ask about Jack, and Jack has got mm. two brothers. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So Jack's got two brothers, Joshua and Oliver. Can you explain what JMML is? I can try. So... Juvenile myocline monocytic leukemia. Um, okay. So it's um, one of the proliferative leukemias, and I guess um, in terms of just trying to understand it in a simple way, it has a strong genetic component to it. Okay. So not necessarily 
genetic as an inherited, but a genetic as in something, you know, genetically going wrong. So that's one of the diagnostics. And that's what makes it so difficult to treat. Um, and so little Jack's trigger, one of his triggers was that he was born with NF1, which is a neurological um, disorder. And that was one of the triggers for his, for his cancer. And okay. none of the rest of the family have that. So we were all tested for that. So he was the first one. So it's just, it's a, it's a cancer that has two. So every cancer has a trigger and this one has two. So you've got to have two triggers to, that's why it's so rare. Mm. Um, just seems that little bit more unfair. <laughs> You know, that yeah. you can be that unlucky. Um, yeah. And it's one in a million that that have JMML, so the research isn't that strong and it's difficult to research mm, because you don't have the cohort, a sufficient cohort to research it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's ironic as well because little Jack was one in a million and now and then, you know, so that was... A, uh, not the best. So there's not a lot known about treatment for JMML in terms of we know that um, stem cell transplant is pretty much the only treatment. I know there's other treatments now, kind of depends on, on, on the genetic component. And the relapse rate is very, very high post-transplant so we kind of, we didn't go in with blinkers on, but, you know, you live in hope, don't you? You just live I, in hope. I completely agree with you. I think when you're in that situation, you have no idea what to expect. Mm -hmm. You know, people bandy about the word cancer left, right and centre. And, you know, as a society, I think we all just hope it's not going to be one of us and it's not going to affect mm -hmm. us. But mm -hmm. inevitably, you know, sadly, these things do and um, and when you are in that situation, you are bombarded with information, aren't you? And it's not, mm. it's just trying to take it all in. But you, like you mm. say, you go in with hope because you're not, mm. you're not really fully sure of what the situation is because you've never experienced it before. So exactly. why would you know? Yeah, I mean, you finish you finish with a sort of honorary honorary degree in in um, oncology, don't you? And you know, you you know more about. <laughs> bloods and cancer and all of it, but the only thing that you really have to get you through is that that hope, blind hope, you know. And because Jack was doing so well, we started to relax and sort of enjoy life and really, really take each moment for the beauty that it was. And he relapsed very, very, very quickly. and sort of died not long after that um, and that was all just a, just a rapid rapid relapse um, and so we didn't really get the opportunity to to go through a second transplant did they um, offer a second transplant at the they, time did they say it was on the on the cards well, we, or we couldn't find a match same as the first time round, we couldn't find a match from the donor pool. Um, Jack very luckily matched to our Oliver, so his older brother, who was six at the time. 
he matched to him. Um, but that information was also delivered with a bit of a backhand because we were told, oh, you know, Oliver's a match, but we need genetic testing because if he's got that same genetic problem as Jack, then we might not be able to use him. And they actually didn't know if they could. So we had to wait weeks and weeks and weeks for that test to come back um, and he was clear. So we could use little Ollie and because he was so little, he had to have the bone marrow extracted from his hips. So that that was that was a biggie, um, and he was amazing. They they were looking for, I can't remember the numbers now, but they had to get, I think it was a million parts per mil of stem cells to to make a sort of viable transplant. And I think Ollie mm. came out with something like fourteen million parts per mil or something. I mean, he was just like. <laughs> Absolutely, superhuman yeah. stem cell <laughs> manufacturer. Um, so, you know, we were quite confident, and the incredible thing was, we we kept telling Jackie it had Ollie's Ollie's cells in this little bag that they eventually put into him, and we were waiting for his blood counts, waiting for those bloods to come in, waiting for the bloods, and on the morning that they did, they'd already taken his blood, so they'd come back as zero, there was nothing happening, and Jack woke up in bed in hospital and sat up and said, Ollie's blood's in. And I was like, oh, and he said, I can feel it. And I said, oh. okay, so I called the nurse and I said, we've got to retake his bloods. She said, no, we've done them. I said, we need to retake them. He's saying that his bloods are in. And there you had, we had our monocyte count. And um, it was just, just amazing, it was amazing. So he could feel it, his brothers. That is, that is mm. just incredible, isn't it? Because mm. you're, you're watching it and these children that go through such extraordinary experiences, and that includes Ollie, obviously, he's, mm. he's donating mm. his stem cells at mm. such a young age. Mm. They come out with this wisdom that... It is incredible. Mm. Yeah. And for such little people, I mean, he was... He was only three then, but he was, you know, these cancer kids grow up way beyond the years. So he was just wise and completely beyond his years. And then when he relapsed, when I kind of had that feeling in my bones that something wasn't right, mm. I said to him, um, well, don't eat so much of that. That'll make you sick. He was eating, I don't know, like his third punnet of blueberries or whatever it was. That's really and healthy. <laughs> I know. He loved healthy food. That's the irony. He'd only eat healthy Gosh. food. Mm-hmm. I know. Um, and he turned around to me and said, oh, but mummy, you know that I'm sick again anyway. It's only Ollie's blood that I need now. So he knew wow. before the relapse, before it was showing, you know, in the blood. He said, that, he said that already before it was confirmed. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a while before yeah. it was confirmed, because those bloods took a long time to sort of catch up with the what was going on. Just yeah. amazing. But you know, in the interim, he he went from being like the normal little brother who just towed along with everything, you know, gorgeous, compliant, happy, but and to being prodded and poked, and he nearly died in that first week we were in hospital and. He just took everything as they do with a smile on his face and a big thumbs up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And we had, in a sense, I had an incredibly precious 
year with him that I never got to get, you know, with my other kids because it's that concentrated time spent in a tiny little space and you get to know someone so well and he had the most beautiful little soul. Um, So we were inevitably very, very close. Um, And he was, yeah, he was... He was hilarious. He had everyone in stitches. Just he was just he was hilarious. He was forthright. He was chatty. Yeah. And he was he never complained. Mm. He did towards the very 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 end with the cancer pain and the and the the needles that they were giving him for the pain. Yeah. He used, he used to say to me so after a few months in hospital I started to swear quite a lot and it just started coming out of my face. <laughs> <laughs> And he used to turn around and say, Mum, you must stop swearing. It's it's rude and it's wrong. So, okay, so every time I swore, he would say, no, that's not nice. Okay, so he would always correct me. And then towards the end, he turned around one day and he went, oh, that's a fuck, are we? And I said, oh, is it, darling? And he said, and now I know why you swear. Because there's only one word for for certain things. Said the four-year-old. I was like, spot on, mate. You know, spot on. Yeah. It is uh, amazing how how much children tolerate before they Mm. get to that tip-over point. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I'm uh, I'm very grateful for you um, speaking so honestly and um, Mm. with the heart of a mum. Oof. Okay, so you've had this extraordinary and heartbreaking experience within your family. Um, mm. And you're out in Australia. You're living out in yeah. Australia. And when after you lost um, beautiful little Jack, mm. when it came to the charity side of things, what, mm. what was your sort of thought process around that? Because my feeling is that when you're bereaved, it's actually... And I find this myself. Um, mm. It's really important to find a purpose. Mm. Um, it, it really is. I mean, when Jack when Jack was doing well, and we thought we had cracked it for that for a little few minutes there, we sat down and we said we really want to be able to give back in some way, um, and we need to find an avenue to be able to support others or to 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 pay it forward. All the kindness we were showed, we were inundated with kindness from people we knew, people we didn't, just, it blew me away. And I thought, we can't ever pay people back, but we can pay it forward. So we we need to find something that we can, you know, some vehicle to do that. And then, so we were talking about, you know, we're just sort of sharing ideas. And then once he got really sick and when he died, we sat, sat chatting and Gary, my husband, said, um, you know, his his focus, if we were going to do something going forward, he would want to do um, something around stem cells. And I said that my focus going forward would, would want to be something, I think about two or three weeks after he died, I, I can't remember the time frames in my head, someone sent us for a few days away and I didn't want to leave the house. I didn't want to leave Jack. And But we went and we took the boys and it was the most precious gift. Yeah. It was just a few days. It was somewhere for me to take my grief. But the boys had been in this house of 
cancer and this house of sadness for so long and you know we hadn't been able to have a holiday and I thought that's I want to be able to give people that yeah um just a somewhere to park their grief or a change of scenery for the siblings who suffer so much um and so we started looking at both and Gary was all about trying to kind of recruit people to the to the um to the pool in Australia but when we looked at it I sort of started to say to him, well, you know, it's a bit of a different process compared to the rest of the world. It doesn't lend itself to doing recruitment drives because it's the process itself was too onerous and, you know, you had to book an appointment at a blood donation centre to donate blood and then while you were there you had to ask about stem cell donation. So they don't do a cheek swab like we do over here? They weren't doing swabs, no. And they, do they still not do that? So there has been some recent change. So after lots and lots of campaigning, not just by us, you know, I've worked with some amazing people um, for the last sort of year. Um, and Pamela from You Are The Cure, we kind of collaborated together. She's an incredible advocate. Um, and we've, we've campaigned with the health ministers to to get the swabs. They had done a self, um, Strength to Give had done a self-funded, self-funded sort of drive of using the swabs in 2019, and that had gone really well. Okay. Um, but then it wasn't funded by the government, so that it was this process of booking an appointment, going to a blood donation centre, asking about stem cell donation, and, you know, at the few times that we did that, we went in sort of incognito and we said, oh, what do we have to do about stem cell donation? The response was horrific. So... You know, this is what puts people yeah. up, isn't it? You know, mm. it's hard enough getting people listening and being even aware of the conversation mm. that needs to be had, but then not being able to just do a cheek swab or just click on a link or whatever exactly. and then have to go in and ask. It just... I know. It's too long, isn't it? It's too long. It's too long. And then, you know, the cohort that you're looking for, which are young men, I mean, how many young men aged 18 to 35 are thinking, what should I do with my day today? Let me go down to the lifeblood and, you know, donate. (laughs) You know, they're not thinking... Let me go down and donate blood and see about stem cell donation. Yeah, if I can (laughs) get on the stem cell donor register. You know, it's 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 not great. So recently, very recently, there was a change after lots and lots of work put in, they've announced that they will fund and back using swaps, the government. Um, Brilliant. Which is brilliant, but, and again, typical sort of government, they've all agreed and there's too too many chefs in the kitchen on on the decision making on this, And uh, but they've all agreed, but nothing's kind of happened. So they've released a minute amount of funding that would probably cover, I don't know, the advertising. You know, so Strength to Give have yet again uh, self-funded to mm-hmm. recruit. They've got enough money to recruit approximately 30,000 people to the donor pool. Okay. Which is fantastic, but yeah. needs to be made sustainable. In, in Australia, so one of the reasons we, we were campaigning to change is that in Australia, when we first started looking at it, the donor pool was capped at 6,000 people a year. 
Why, why, sorry, let me just stop for a second. Why was it capped? Is there a reason? Yeah, it was all based on funding. Mm. So they did a they did a funding analysis in the 1990s. <sighs> so, you know, 33 years ago, and they decided that 6,000 people a year would be a sustainable donor pool. Um, oh, my goodness. And how many people... So I'd, I'd read the thousands of people that will sort of have a, a diagnosis of blood cancer in a year. Yeah. So it's about 15 people die and will lose their life a day. I've got 18,500 Australians. Hmm. A year. A year. Yeah. And they think there's a, and there's a cap on mm. 6,000. That doesn't make any sense. So they'll lift, they will lift the cap when the funding comes in, but it's a right. matter of kind of acknowledging intrinsically what's wrong with the whole Australian process. You know, like our age limit's smaller than, I think DKMS is to 65, isn't it? I think it's, it's 17 to 55 for DKMS and it's okay. um, 16 to 30 for Anthony Nolan. Oh yeah, so um, ours is 18 to 35, so it's very, very limiting. Yeah. And the the people that we do have on the register, I think there was 20,000 of them were being retired from the register last year because they'd become too old. Um, See, even in that situation, if there was a way of saying, when you're 36, mm. then you just reapply and go on the register for DKMS somewhere. Mm. Um, mm. But then I don't know whether that would be possible if you're not in the country that you... Uh, apply to there must be some international there might be it's worth exploring actually if we could collaborate somehow to get them onto there I know that you see once you don't get kicked off once you turn 35 I think you get you, you you're on for years after that yeah but they kick you off when you're much older so then why don't they just lift the age limit yeah it seems that would make more sense if you just lifted the age limit if you're keeping people on past the age limit you might as well lift the age limit yeah because you stay on i think you stay on with dkms you're on it till you're 55 and then you stay on it i think till you're 60 or maybe even 65 yeah. i need to clarify I can't remember that. the age yeah i need to clarify that you do yeah. stay on quite a lot longer I've forgotten what age that is but there needs to be a way that when you apply to the register, you just need to be on one yeah. to be found. Um, in the pool. Yeah. yeah, so as long as you're on one somewhere. And that's why, you know, we've been happy to... We've done a few campaigns involving, you know, the British news and that kind of thing with the contacts that we have. Mm. Um, and we've been happy to do that because it's, it's not just about Australia. It's about any one person in that pool mm. can save anyone anywhere in the world. And so every single registration counts yeah and your husband gary is yeah ex-footballer he is yeah he um connected with everton everton right? rangers and he yes. played for england yeah yes you know when blues v cancer on twitter um andy mitchell has yes. been raising awareness yes uh and doing an awful lot to get people on board and get people yeah. signing up and particularly when you think about young footballers yeah exactly. you know it's young men it's that cohort yeah. please can you sign up that sort of thing so that's yeah that i should imagine with gary's help as well has been really really helpful long term especially in australia once once we've got really easy access to swaps that's the plan is to target those groups of people you know yeah. young men in sport because that's 
where they're all at. Yeah. And obviously, you know, the likes of Andy and his passion that he brings to it, just, he's been amazing. Yeah. And those are the sort of people we need to keep this constantly moving forward. We've got a few in Australia with that same kind of passion. And we've got um, Sean McGavin in Ireland who goes around in his pink van um, encouraging him. people to um, to swab and register. And, you know, you've just... And without those people, I don't know where we would be. So, so that's our plan eventually is to try and get as many people on the register as we can. Um, the Australian donor pool needs at least 25,000 a year to be viable. You know, our population is much smaller than Britain, but we've got lots and lots of kind of complications within our population in that isolated groups of people don't have a lot of family members or or what you call it sort of genetic matches on it within the pool yeah and so we really need to reach the whole of Australia to to make sure that anybody diagnosed has got a, a chance it's got a match and and, yeah. and this is the, I think this is the thing isn't it I think with magical match podcast we're trying to yeah. reach out to a more international audience and try and mm. make this a conversation that we have in every single family so that mm. you know if you are diagnosed because it's like one in two of us mm. across the globe will will have a cancer experience mm. and whether that's we know somebody or it, it happens mm. to us and mm. If you, if you end up needing a, a transplant, you need somebody at the other end, somewhere on that little list, on that magical uh-huh. list, to, to know that you've got that extra support and you've got that chance of life. And it is a chance of life, you know. It's just such a, it's such a sort of simplistic answer to saving someone's life. It's, it's, you know, the process, little Ollie had to have the operation, but the process we know now is nowhere near as sort of gruelling as that. And it just seems so simple to kind of just go and get a swab and see if you can save someone's life. It's, you know, why is it so difficult to motivate people to do that? And we're all touched by cancer, as you say. Um, but where you know that there's a possible cure and you could be the key to that, it seems just a very sort of simple solution and we just got to get get that message out there so hopefully um it won't be long before we can kind of turn things around in australia and you know there's so many so many flaws in in our system we we take 80 percent of our transplants are from international donors wow yeah so 80 percent in in australia 80 percent from outside australia yeah so happily taking everybody else's stem cells but not putting anything back into the pool, which, you know, just doesn't s- sit well. And and then, of course, you've got that 48-hour turnaround to get stem cells to someone across the globe. And during COVID, none of that, that was impossible because of things being withheld and, you know. Um, and so we've had all sorts of horrible stories. One little boy was waiting for his stem cells and they were left on the tarmac in America and... You know, he had gone through conditioning, which is extreme chemo to get you and ready. You as you know, stem cells yeah, immediately, don't you? On the right day, um, and just just opens itself up to too much vulnerability, relying on the rest of the world. And and they they actually um, did some experimental. They were getting stem cells um, sent over, and then because they couldn't get into the country in time, they started fr- freezing them via Germany. 
Oh, right. So, you know, there was all this kind of... And did that work? Seems to have worked. Uh, I, I haven't seen any kind of evidence around that, but I know mm. it was kind of very ad hoc. What can we do here? We haven't got 40... You know, we're not going to make the 48-hour turnaround. We'll just quickly freeze them where someone can legally freeze them, which happened to be in Germany. So mm. all very risky and essentially unnecessary if, you know, you could just benchmark against the rest of the world. Understand that the evidence put together in all the studies they've done really highlights mm. to use the swabs to lift the, the, the cap. You know, it just, it's seems very simple but we've had um, one of our politicians said it quite well he said Australia hasn't moved fast enough and it's the governance between the state and territories that's just not good enough the decision making mm. that was Mark Butler recently in parliament so he about summed it up so hopefully there is a bit of change on the horizon so we're hoping that that carries on and then we can really start driving to to get some donors into the pool yeah and your website, would you like to talk about your website and what, what you now do as a, yeah. as a charity? Are you, you are a charity now. Yes, yeah, oh, yeah. Yes. we're a registered yeah. charity um, yeah. thanks to some help from um, FAL lawyers who helped us do all of that pro bono, so that was wonderful of them. So we, we've been fighting this stem cell process um, for some time now and... Then we also do some fundraising. So we're fundraising to try and help uh, families who have lost a child to cancer, to try and help them financially. And this is Forever4, isn't it? Forever4. Forever4.com.au. Yeah. And so we'd love to be able to help them financially. There's a, you get quite a lot of support over here during the cancer journey. There's a number of charities. Um, and obviously the government also has schemes that will assist you um, financially, but once your child dies, that all s falls off, completely stops. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's as if you're supposed to sort of grieve for four weeks and then jump back on your horse, go full-time work. You know, luckily for me, I found a job that really fits and suits where I want to be. So, mm -hmm. like, I've been really quite lucky to just be able to do that. But there's a lot of people that really struggle to come to terms with you know going trying to work or just managing their lives uh, to be honest yeah I do think it's really hard and speaking again from personal experience like you say we we have a lot of experience and you you almost become a family the nurses and the doctors become extended mm. family because you see them every mm. single day mm. and they're they know your child they know you they know all the things that are going on and then when you step away from that, it's like you've just sort of stepped into nowhere land, you know. Mm. And, and there are people that that will step up and help. But unless you know where to look, you you feel very alone. That's the other thing. Yeah, that's the other thing. There's, it's the... I mean, I, did, I have described it a few times as just stepping off a precipice. And that's exactly what you were saying there. And it's just trying to find out the information, what's out there, and everything's so disjointed. Mm. So we're hoping to not only be able to help families financially and eventually with a grief retreat, but okay. also to be a source of community where we can share 
what's out there to help or, you know, share experience that is helpful in itself or just a, just a you know, place for community to come together and, and find out what's, what's out there, really, because that is mm. a tricky one. Mm. And what would you say to somebody who, you know, we're listening at the moment, we, we've heard the, you know, just a snippet of your mm. story and the fact that there need to be more um, stem cell donors. But what would you say to somebody who is listening to this, you know, and maybe they don't know about stem cell donation or maybe they're just listening because they just kind of want to have a clue. Mm. What, what would you say to somebody who might be considering signing up? I think part of, part of the process of, of de- debunking all the myths around stem cell transplant is, is explaining to people that after your swab, if you do match someone, the process is kind of like having dialysis. It's not, there's no other operation involved. I think a lot of people still believe that you're going in for surgery, you know, which is unbelievable, but it, it is still out there. Um, so it's just understanding that the process is a really simple one. And it's not, what's it? It's not what's the word injurious in any way. That's a really yeah, bad description. Hurt. It's not going to hurt you. And if you match, you know, if you match someone and you're able to give them those few cells that they were part of you in a non-hurtful way, yeah. you, you could literally just save someone's life. And it's that simple. And it's just such a simple process. Um, I just can't imagine why anyone 18 to 35 or whatever it is wouldn't consider it. And just get on it. Just go and do it. Just go and do it. Yeah, you just yeah. never know. Well, it's been lovely talking to you. I'm oh, Jenny. Thanks. I am so moved by the way you've spoken about your children and can I ask how your how your family are doing at the moment obviously it's only been a very short time it has but how are the boys doing well it's 82 weeks which feels like a a week yeah you know um and I think they're feeling it we've got Josh who's just turned 13 and so he was turned he was nine when Jack was diagnosed and little Ollie who's nine now and you know, they're both still really feeling it because life just moves on, doesn't it? It moves on. Yeah. And everyone expects you to move on, but then they've still got this, well, quite a lot of trauma associated with all of it. Um, mm. And a sad mum and dad, you know, mm. and there's always this little person missing from everything and that double-edged, every celebration still has that kind of sadness that comes with it. So that we've lost that pureness of joy. Um, and that'll be with them forever, I think. You know, they've, they will eventually be incredibly resilient and everyone keeps saying, you know, the kids, they'll be resilient. But actually you can't build resilience on a trauma, on a brain that's in flight or fright. You can't build resilience. So I'm sure at some point they will build that. That'll become part of who they are. But for now, it's just about getting through. It's still feels like we're in the thick of that grief yeah it's hard it is it is and again I'm I'm really grateful for you being so honest about it because I'm acutely aware how that sense of 
this is reality, but it doesn't feel real. Mm. And it's such a short space of time. It's like all time and no time mm. when you all lose time. a child. Mm. It really is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you have triggers, don't you? So like the birthday feels like yesterday. And so you relive it and you relive it. And it's, yeah. it just, it doesn't get any easier. I think that's the other misconception. People think, oh, time will heal all. It, you know, that's, <laughs> that's an absolute untruth. Yeah. yeah. So it just doesn't get easier. But we found our way of getting through. Mm. And that's what the boys will do as well. You know, they... They're just finding things that they love, and I think that's important to help them focus and find some joy. Yeah, yeah. It's keeping hold of that joy, isn't Mm. it? Finding. Mm. I always I have this little sayings of of finding the sparkles of light in every day because they're there. It's just whether or not you happen to have spotted them, and it might Mm. be the worst day in the world, but you just need to see something Mm. that will just bring back that moment of oh hope yeah so yeah thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for thank you taking the time today i really hope that anybody who's listening will see this as a call to action and go and educate themselves find out about it realize that it is so simple and go and sign up yeah especially in australia me too Especially, well, especially in Australia, but anywhere, anywhere anywhere. in the world, please do it. Yeah, so if they do want to sign up in Australia, they just need to nip onto the Strength to Give website and they can order a swap. Wonderful. Simples. Yeah. Simples. That's Simples. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I hope you're listening, people. Please go and do it right this second. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for listening. That brings this episode to a close. I'm so grateful to Louise for taking the time to share her story and to share Jack with us. I hope you found this conversation both interesting and moving. And as a sparkly new podcast, we are looking for guests to share their inspirational stories. And if you have one, we'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on Twitter at Magical Match Pod and get in touch there if you'd like to join me to share your stem cell story. If you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, do like and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have time, write us a review. We'll be back with a new episode very soon. In the meantime, please do consider signing up to the Stem Cell Register because you could be someone's magical match. Thank you for listening. Magical Match Podcast is an OB Hive production, originally inspired by a conversation with Andy Mitchell and other like-minded individuals. Magical Match Podcast is hosted and produced by Ginny Walker with audio production by James Walker and music by Cobalt Ocean.